Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to chapter 55 of the Corona Diaries. And I ought to start doing that intro a little bit slower because what H does is, so we're normally giggling before we start. So he then instructs me to centre and then he says, right, well, I'll hold my breath. So, and, and I think that's a hope not to distract me as I try and do the only bit of the episode that actually feels professional. But I need to start, like, I need to start stretching that out a bit. See if I can turn you blue. Yes. Well, well, I'm not that disciplined. I'll just, uh, I'm not that bothered, you know. I'm just trying to be nice. Now, the six seconds is about as much as we're going to get, isn't it? Yes. I have, I, I have breath control, darling. I've, had, I've been at it for years. <laughs> and, and how are you today? Because you were waving off some Germans. I dive for pearls in between vocal takes. Um, for, for pearls what? <laughs> Uh, uh. <laughs> razor sharp, razor sharp. How's the Germans? Um, well, lovely, really. Yes. Yeah, quite chatty. You've got yeah. to you've got to put twenty minutes to one side if you run into Dean on the on along the terrace, out the right. back. Along he, the terrace, out the back. He's a chatty German. Mm. That's a great name. That along the terrace, out the back. Mm. I like that. Mm. We ought to, you ought to name something that. Our house. <laughs> Along okay. the terrace out the back cottage. Oh, excellent. I like that. So um, we've, we finished with Brave, didn't we? We kind of, we came to an end. Brave came to an end last week as far as the tour's concerned. I mean, obviously Brave still exists, but you know what I mean. Mm. The, the tour and the whole, the whole, mm. the whole Brave show and um, yeah, that, the, that came to an end. The, the, the shoulder probably healed up after that. Mm. Uh, told you about we, that, didn't I? They were, they were mugging me and they kept pulling me bloody yeah, you've, shoulder you've, out and I've you've, you've never caught on to it. No, you've mentioned Until the Port Zalan show. It was done <laughs> later. later. Yet. <laughs> yes. So it's amazing how sharp you can become with a 20-year gap in between. <laughs> um, so the diary's going to cover a bit in New York and that's the bit where you go and see Tommy and we've talked about that, so I'm not going to... I'm not going to dwell on that too much and we'll let mm. the diary do the talking and we might have mm. a few questions after that. But what that does bring us to is um, Afraid of Sunlight because mm. that's the next stage in the journey. And the thing that I've always found astonishing about AOS is that if you go to the various, like if you read um, John's book, Separate It Out, there's a page on, sep- on uh, the recording process for Afraid of Sunlight. There's nothing in your diary about it it's completely mm-hmm. bypassed. As you said before, you often don't write the diary while you're in the studio. Uh, and yet it's such an important part of the canon. Um, 
you know, certainly has taken on that mantle over the years. So I thought we'd delve into AOS with a bit of detail, if that is okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll do it. Subject to what you can remember. Detail as well. Creaky cabbage between my ears allows. Creaky cabbage, I like that as well. (laughs) Um, The first thing, though, is that album's actually written in racket. It's the first album written in racket. I guess so. I guess so. Well, we had Little Racket and we we wrote quite a lot of Brave in there. And then while we were away somewhere, can't quite remember where we we went away to, maybe we were just on holiday, Privet Hedge, our old sound man, um, converted um, a much larger space on the same same, uh, estate. Um, round the corner, because we we thought we can't carry on like this. This is mad. We, we're all just on top of each other, and you know it, it was you couldn't swing a cat or a microphone. You couldn't really swing your handbag in there. Um, you couldn't swing your absinthe. Cause I was talking to Ian last week, and he was going. Didn't you used to have a bottle of absinthe on the piano while we were writing Brave? I went, yeah, it was bright green. Uh, he said, yeah. He said, you should get another one of those. And I said, <laughs> I'm not quite sure why he thought that. Maybe he thought my songwriting had slipped a bit <laughs> over the years. Sobriety's pol- really not helped you. polite way of saying <laughs> You should return to the hallucinogenics, Mr H. <laughs> For the good of the band, so yes, we, the, there wasn't room to swing to swing the bottle of absinthe in the other one. And we, while we were away somewhere, Privet went in and with breeze blocks and God knows what, and divided this this other part of what is really an industrial unit um, into little rooms that were sound insulated from each other, and you know, made a control room and a recording space. Um, with a proper glass window like real studios have, um, and um, that was that was that. So then we moved, we moved in. You know, once we'd got the carpet down and saw that it all out and wired it up and stopped it humming and buzzing, um, we moved in there. Uh, what on earth can I remember about Afraid of Sunlight? I can remember things at, at random, really. I remember we used take one of Cannibal Surf Babe um, that we then went back to and sort of rationalised and tidied up and then decided we didn't like it and went back to the original tape, which was much more sort of yobby. Um, I remember that. I remember thinking it sounded like Motorhead. When when I was in the room with the band, because Rothers had got his guitar tuned down, and it was really fast, mm. um, and I was singing "Surf Babe," which was a a lyric that John Helmer had sent through, um, suitably disturbed. I didn't add much to that, really. I think I think my only contribution to "Surf Babe" was the bit in the middle about the birds coming up out of the forest and the fab- the fabulous brightly coloured birds. Um, the little narration in the middle, I kind of wrote on the fly and she looked like she'd had sex with a Tyrannosaurus Rex. 
<laughs> which uh, I was very proud of as a mm. couplet because um, I've often had that look myself. Um, and um, that was that was it, Sound Like Motorhead. Um, Gaspacho, the, the original jam for that, was so bass-heavy, you know, with, the, with all the... Um, um, you know, it's like a bass solo in a lot of ways, uh, gazpacho. Um, Rothers is playing that really bright, jangly, ding, 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 ding. And Pete was doing a boom, 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 boom. And um, again, that was a Helmer lyric. So you're walking on your velvet lawn. I think I added a few odds and sods to that, but that was essentially what John had sent. Um, Did you start then? Did John actually have those lyrics before you sat down for the first session? Because I'm assuming you started to come together, what, latter part of 94? Would that be right? No clue. No clue. I'm not good with that. Hang on, let me check the diary. Because it was about that we were finishing, weren't we? Yes, it was. So you, September 94, you were in New York. Right. and And your diary picks up again in... June of 95. Right, it would have been all that year then. Yeah, well, so, so we it was a nine-month window. We brought Dave Megan in again. You know, we'd enjoyed working with him so much on Brave. Um, and we'd got some political shenanigans going on with the MI. They, I think, after Brave, they wanted to let us go because we'd spent so much of their money making Brave um, and we weren't playing the game, you know. It wasn't, it wasn't, didn't have three solid radio-friendly tracks, which I think is what record companies expect if you spend that kind of money <laughs> on a record. Um, and there weren't, and so I think there'd been a bit of a well bollocks to this lot then feeling at EMI. Uh, the last straw was a was a coffee machine. Uh, which wasn't a coffee machine. It was just a French press. You know, the, you put the coffee in and <laughs> yeah. press it down. And we ordered one of those on the budget while we were at Marowat. Um, and um, the invoice arrived at some point in front of the A&R man. And it was in francs because it was back in the days of francs. And there was about 10 francs to the pound and he thought it was in pounds. And he thought we'd spent 300 quid on a coffee machine. <laughs> And build it to EMI, and he went mental, um, and that was the last straw. And I thought <laughs> that was they showed us the door after that, while we tried in vain to point out it was in fact only thirty quid, uh, which was what he routinely spent on, you know, getting a taxi across the street. Mm. Um, but um, there was a bit of political stuff. I think John Arneson, our manager, sat down with them and they agreed they would make one more record with us, provided we did it really quickly uh, on the cheap, which is why we put this album was knocked out, knocked out. On, the, on the sleeve. That wasn't because we felt it was in any way shoddy. It was just a little bit of a finger at EMI. Mm. Um, and because of the... The boxing reference as well, so it was a nice double entendre. You showed um, them the Arnold Palmer. <laughs> we did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> that won't mean anything That's, to anybody. But yes, private joke. Private joke. 
<laughs> so, um, so yeah, so we so we went into into racket. Um, I rem, I mean, the way I remember it, which is bound to be wrong, uh, Dave Megan seemed to be there really early on, you know, during the the inverted commas writing sessions as as well as the recording sessions. I think he was with us. Um, I remember him nailing um, Gaspacho together musically, and and me thinking, what on earth is he doing? This is this is all bonkers. But of course, it made sense in the end. It's all in mad time signatures, um, and I thought it sounded like yes because of the the prevalence of that big bass guitar mm. thump, thumping around the place. And um, anyway, we decided it was cool. Um, I think the title track, Afraid of Sunlight, Rothers had got the chorus, the that, that, that rolling around uh, guitar sequence. Um, again, that was a Helmer lyric. And I was singing that against it and everybody agreed that was a really good thing but we didn't have any verses for it. Um, and the verses took a long time. So I wrote the verses, uh, Drive the Road to Your Surrender, Time Comes Around, all of that, um, fairly late on in the process. Um, I think that was something I wrote towards the end, you know, and then um, what else is on there beyond you? I seem to remember Mark having bought a Hammond organ, a proper one, and that was in the corner humming and puffing away as they do with the... And the Leslie was in the spare room spinning round and all of that and he was trying to get it going and make some sense out of it. And I think, I think we wrote... I think Mark and I wrote the verse for Beyond You together when he was playing those organ chords. And Megan really liked that. And he was sort of channeling... He was the ideal producer for that song because he was really channeling that darkness. He 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 was very good at sort of dark soul. Um, you know, and ghosts, ghosts. song's got ghosts. Um... So that came together most definitely in the new in the new racket club with Mark's new organ. Um and then of course once we'd started getting our teeth into Beyond You, it occurred to us all that it sort of naturally sounded like a Phil Spector song, you know. Boom, <laughs> boom, boom, boom. So uh, I don't know if that was my idea or not. I think it might have been. I said, you know, this is really Phil Spector-esque. Maybe we could go to town and, you know, do a do a, a pastiche or, a, you know, an homage, whatever you want to call it, to Phil and get all the big... And that's why we put castanets on, the, on it and everything, you know, to get that sort of you've lost that loving feeling, leader of the pack... <laughs> kind of vibration <laughs> going um i remember i remember us all being in the room 
the day that that beautiful was jammed, Rothers had got this Steinberg graphite guitar thing, this double neck thing, which has a really lovely 12 string sound. And that was jangling away. Um, and I'd written those words a while before, you know, everybody knows. We live in a world where we give bad names to beautiful things. Um, and I don't know, I got onto the chorus with the leaves turn from red to brown, but that all sort of came together in the moment, the way I remember it. I think I just sang that on and we all thought, oh, it was really slow. I mean, it's not exactly fast now, but when we wrote it, it was super slow. You'd got time to think between <laughs> between the beats. You could have a little reverie, you know, before the next beat. It was that slow, which our stuff often is when we're jamming it because we, we need time to think <laughs> think what the next note could be when we're jamming. So all our jams tend to be achingly slow and we speed them up massively to... Uh, to <laughs> and they're still in double figures on BPM by the time we've sped them up normally. Um so beautiful. We we thought that sounded like No Woman, No Cry. No Woman, No Cry. So we, I think we called it Bob Marley. I think that was the working title for Beautiful for a long time. Um, and then King, of course. I don't know what I've left out. I've, there's Afraid of Sunrise because we'd used the same words. We'd used Helmer's words twice. Uh, once for Afraid of Sunlight and once for Afraid of Sunrise. Um, and John's John's lyric was the Afraid of Sunrise lyric, dressed in black, no turning back, blanked out in the great white way. Uh, fingers in his eyes, crack the bridge and tunnel into day. Great words. Um, so I'd hung that on this funny little 7-8 acoustic rolling thing that we'd got going one day with all the fretless bass on it. Sounds like something off Hegira or something. So we called that Joni. We called that Joni Mitchell. Mm. That was the working title for Afraid of Sunrise. And then when Afraid of Sunlight started to come together, I realised we were going to need we we're going to need a whole lot more words, and we, you know, because we couldn't have two songs on the album with the same lyric, even though they ended up with the same chorus lyric. Um, we need we couldn't have two songs with the same words all the way through. So I, I set set myself to the task of rewriting the verses of Afraid of Sunlight, and we kept John's complete lyric. For afraid of sunrise, I, th I think I added hardly anything to that. Abandoned to the salt of skin, abandoned to the highway. I think I wrote, and the rest was what John already had. Um, and I think I've probably said this before, but but um, I remember thinking back to the night that I did the lead vocal for Afraid of Sunrise, which is a song all about desert heat and the road. The, you know, the road shimmering, the salt of skin and the open-top car and, you know, the road movie. And the night that I did the lead vocal on that, the racket club, 
about five inches of snow fell. And I, I went outside and I, could, could, I nearly never got home because there was so there was a, a blizzard raging when I was singing the song about the heat in the desert, which uh, you would never guess if you heard the song. That was that was ironic, ironical. Um, what have I missed out, King? King, that big that synth that Mark had was great at the beginning. And I'd been writing this. I wrote that lyric, and I'd been writing about the the sort of the the you know it was partly confessional. About uh, you know, I I'd, I'd had days on the Brave tour where I was coming a bit unstitched. Um, I find myself sitting in corridors crying, <laughs> <laughs> not quite knowing why. <laughs> and it's funny because um, I I saw a, I saw a, a, a little doc, documentary film a few years back about Deep Purple. And one of them was saying, we were in America and we, we'd been touring really hard. We'd been touring a lot. We were working so hard. And he said, um, I knew we probably needed a break. When I saw Richard just sitting in a corridor weeping. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, I know that <laughs> feeling exactly. <laughs> well, you're just, just right at the end of your tether. Um, it's a bit of a uh, giveaway. I mean, if you, if you did it in a school <laughs> corridor, it'd get picked up on fairly quickly, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Grown men sitting in <laughs> Just hotel weeping. corridors, crying quietly yeah. to themselves. Yeah, People you, know, must... you know you've been out a bit too long at that point. People must have wandered up to you and gone, there, there, Steve, what have you lost? <laughs> <laughs> of all the things I've lost, <laughs> I miss my mind the most. Um so uh, I think you know, having having sort of gone through the emotional roller coaster of the, of performing Brave Night after night, um, it had rattled me a bit from time to time, and so and everything was going on that year with um, Kurt Cobain dying, and that was that set everybody kind of thinking and. Um, Tyson being arrested and O.J. Simpson um, in that chase with all those all those police cars, which we even put we put that in the album um, on the end of Gaspacho. We 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 just ran the whole news item in it at the end, you know, all the hilling and the, the house is surrounded by helicopters. Was was. Um, that was actually John Lennon doing an impression of Phil Spector uh, during an interview, talking about working with Phil and how Phil had ran off with the tapes and he couldn't find him for about six months. And he was trying to make an album and this mad producer had, had buggered off with all the tapes and nobody could find him. And it turns out he was holed up in this house, totally paranoid and off his head, thinking that the aliens were coming for him and the, the FBI which might not have been paranoia as it turned out. <laughs> um, so um, there was all that going on, so it was so easy. It's not easy, but it was sort of natural in a way that that King would would appear as an expression of 
the downfall of the hero. Um, what else? Is that all of it? Out of Have this I missed world. anything? Oh, my goodness, out of this world, yeah. Well, I think we were writing out of this world during the Brave Sessions. Um, right. Because when I think back to out of this world, I had that, that, that you know, the, the cliche is, you know, words on the back of a beer mat or a fag packet or something. And I did have a little bit of paper with those, I think, what did it say? 300 miles an hour on water and you're perfect. And your purpose-built machine, no one dared to call a boat. Screaming blew out of this world. You had it there for a second, Don. I think that's what it said. Um, and, you know, that sort of slightly comedic last line. Um, and that was on a piece of paper that I, it might have been something I'd written way back in the How We Live days. And it was in a folder. And the band was jamming one, one, one day at the first racket club. The um, the Noah's Ark one, and I've, I I seem to remember the verse of that going down as a jam, which I think was something we resurrected when we were putting out uh, when we were putting Afraid of Sunlight together. Maybe Megan heard it, picked up on it, and I think Dave really loved it. Um, and Dave again did a lot of work turning what was really just the beginning of that verse into a complete song and the only love will turn you round. Now, only love will turn you round was a line from John Helmer's original runaway lyric. Uh, Did you cry when they dragged you home and all of that? Uh, um, And somewhere in his original lyric, he'd, he'd got this line, only love will turn you round. It might have been the last. It might have been the last line of the runaway lyric, which I'd never used, and that got me thinking. Mm. Um, and so I've got John Helmer to thank for "Only Love Will Turn You Around" too. Although I used it to mean something else, really. You know, I, only love's going to stop you doing this because you are going to kill yourself. Mm. And of course, he did. So that was, you know, that three-four section of Out of This World, again, was another jam that we'd got. And Megan said, oh, you could, you could, it could go into that. And nobody in the band could figure out how those two sections of music could possibly go together. And to this day, I'm not sure that they can. <laughs> <laughs> it took a lot of rehearsing. I mean, try doing it. Mm. It, it. It is like the uh, the body of a giraffe on the head of a horse uh, a little bit, that moment. And it's beautiful when it's done right and it's lovely. But um, it took the mind of Dave Megan to suggest it. And in the end, you know, the, so we live you and I, um, at the side of the edge of running the screen. Yeah, that was something I I wrote much later. So those sometimes you know we've got songs that comprise of lyrics by two different guys, 
um, sections of which might have been written 15 years apart. Yeah. And I th- and Out of This World is one of those. Mm. I think I was reading. What was I reading then? I was reading the old Garcia Marquez back then. I don't know if, if, he, if he crept in. Just got a flashback then. Because the Holidays in Eden sleeve was nicked from the Penguin version of um, Love in the Time of Cholera by Marquez. And I was reading that um, in that sort of period. So I'd got my head in, in that place. Did when right? How do I phrase this? So John brings Gaspacho. John brings Cannibal Surf Babe, mm. um, which adds to this whole kind of concept within the album of um, of I suppose the downside of fame or or you know the the journey that that tortured souls will go through. Well, Gaspacho did, and. You know, he'd got that and I'd got King and that they they were sort of natural bedfellows. And then Surf Babe had the kind of that 60s thing. You yeah. know, there was the, the, obviously the, the Beach Boys. You know, you can't say surf without. So then that, I think that kind of led us to, to, to mining that that uh, theme as well, the 60s, and then, you know, Phil Spector and Beyond You. So I think, weirdly, Beyond You and Surf Babe are sort of bedfellows um, in my head. And Gaspacho and King are bedfellows. Uh, Fright of Sunlight is probably in bed with Beyond You as well Um, because there was a lot of sort of, a heart-rending strife in um, Beyond You and Afraid of Sunlight. Um, And then Afraid of Sunrise was just out there on its own, although it did have that same kind of deserty road movie feeling that Afraid of Sunlight had. So there was a – it was a little bit redolent of – Paris, Texas. I was going to say it has a real Paris, Texas feel to me. Always yeah, has had. Yeah, we, we, you know, Rothers was watching that film. I was watching that film, and we 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 were trying to get that that imagery going um, while we were working on it, um, and that imagery made its way into in into the album artwork mm. as well. You know, with the the back of the the big American. Car is it a Cadillac or something with the fins? Yeah. Um, and I asked Bill Smith if he could run an ice skate right through all of it, and it's really subtle. If you don't know it's there, you might not see it. But if you look at that front cover, there's an ice skate that runs. There's the blade of an ice skate that runs right along the car. Um, for my own private reasons. <laughs> but you, you. I suppose you're right in that in the Surf Babe and Beyond You um, have that feel of a certain point in time. But then, of course, with Surf Babe, you've got the, the Brian Wilson story behind it anyway. So it plays mm. into that. And even with Beyond You, you've got the Phil Spector story and that plays into it as well, doesn't it? Mm. So it, they, they operate on a number of levels. It's 
definitely the most American mm. album we've ever made in terms of of referencing America. Not 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 necessarily American music, but the idea of America was was very bound up and afraid of sunlight in a way that I don't think we've done before or since. No. No, it, it really I I mean I don't know we talk about the fact that a lot of the Marilyn albums are a reaction to a, a, a previous one on a lot of them stand alone and don't sound like a lot of the other ones. But I mean, you know, Afraid of Sunlight to me has always sounded absolutely unique in the whole you know, in, in in the whole if you go through the back catalogue, there's just nothing there's nothing there that sounds like AOS. No, it's a, and the title track's such a brilliant mix, such a brilliant mix. I remember listening to it in um, in headphones or on speakers for that matter. And the verse of "Driving the Road to You, Surrender" and all that is right in your face. And it gets to the end of that verse. Um, Times Leave, leave me running the wheel, king of the world. How do you, how do you feel? And as I sing, how do you feel? The thing just goes away. It, it just, it just eases away from you, and it, and it opens out like a book opening into the chorus, which is massive and sort of windswept. Um, and I guess he must have just done it with delays and reverbs. It might even have been a happy accident, but. I absolutely love the way that during that, how do you feel? It just goes, you know, and there's suddenly, it's suddenly half a mile wide Mm. from having been right on the end of your nose during verse one. Um, That's wonderful. And if, if anyone else had done it, I would have been, I would have been awestruck by it. Well, I'm awestruck by it anyway, but, but it was, it was an amazing feat of mixing on on Megan's part. Mm. It's an incredibly, incredibly produced album mm. um, from beginning to end. Yeah, uh, it was a clever banger. You know, I mean, the, I mean the, the 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 choice of the choice of sounds, the you know, the tones on it, they're just like you say. I mean, Rothers is playing that that double neck, which he never really played to the same extent on other albums since, as far as I'm aware. Um, no, it's it's on Estonia. Mm. But it's all it's all over bits of um, you know bits of, of AOS. It's it's uh, and it really adds a different you know a different feel to it. And like you say, the bass tones and that that chugging guitar in, in you know in Surf Babe um, really captured that whole that whole vibe. It's uh, it's a really unique sounding sounding record. How do the band feel about it now? I I think there's a general feeling that it's probably i mean we're still a bit i mean although it's been a while now we're still a bit too close to fear to to assess it but um there's a general feeling that afraid of sunlight is the band's best collection of songs on one record um and a bit like brave it it it, it has a sort of a um it has its own ghost. You know, Brave has its own ghost and AOS has its own, its own sort of soul and a feeling about it 
um, which is a totally different feeling to brave, but nonetheless is operating in the in the metaphysics mm. <laughs> somewhere. And we we talk in nine months, which I suppose back then probably was still a reasonable amount of time. I mean, now for the band feels like a remarkably short period of time. Bearing in mind what you've just described is a load of songs that all came together. There was very little hangover from Brave. You've not really talked about much hangover at all there. No, there was just Out of This World. There was just that section of Out of This World, really. So that's that's 50-odd minutes worth of material. Um, you know, and from what you said, the, the, there wasn't much in the way of writing on, you know, you don't write on the road. No, no, we nothing gets written on the road. We we always say we will, and we never do. No. Um, so so you know that's a those songs must have been put together in what two or three months, three or four months before you got to the stage of starting to get them down. Yeah, it came together quickly. It really did, and um, so did TSC. That was quite a quick one as well. I think that was written from the AOS leftovers. You know the things that were half developed and on the shelf. Mm. A lot of a lot of what ended up on TSC was was there, and there's a lot of good songs on TSC too. So anything um, in particular that's on TSC that nearly made it to AOS? Is there anything that was really close, or was it pretty much nailed on? It was those eight. No, I I don't think there was anything. Yeah, they they were nailed on from word go, yeah. really. I don't remember anything being thrown sideways. I could be wrong, mm. you know. One of the boys might recall differently. Mm. There's nothing, when I, when I put the two albums together, there's nothing at first glance that you would go, actually, no, that just sounds like it could have been there. Um, maybe mm, Estonia. No, well, Estonia was written especially yeah. for a little event in Henley, so that that did come later. Yeah, so, and, and I guess on that, I was going on the sound more than anything else. Yeah, I could kind of hear the sound. Yeah, that was his uh, Steinberg twelve-string thing. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Right. Okay. Well, we'll probably return to to, to iOS because I think there's more things to, to to dig into. I'd like to dig into a couple of the lyrics in a little bit more detail, so we we'll maybe get around to that next week. But we'll 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 tiptoe mm. we'll tiptoe into a bit of into a bit of diary. Yes. And, and you you've got a few days in New York coming up. Yes, a few strange days in New York. Well, I'll let you leave Mexico. Try mm. and get your shit together. You don't seem to have much time to do that. No, I remember the record company girl walking me onto the plane. So you can only do that. I don't know if you can do that anymore in Mexico, but in the, in in those days, um, Mexico's such a civilized country, especially if you go straight there from America, where everything is rules and regulations. And no, I can't do that. And well, you can really, but you're just telling me you can't. You twat. Um, you go from that in America and then you get to Mexico and you go, hey, my friend, have this. I brought, I brought you a tequila you got. Can I drink that here? Of course you can. Um, everything's kind of all right in Mexico. Um, and sanity tends to prevail uh, in the sense that they go, look, 
this guy's a singer in a rock and roll band. We don't need to put him through security for Christ's sake. He's not blowing anybody up, you know. Right, come right this way. <laughs> and half this girl's from the record label. Oh, she can come and she can yeah. come and wave bye bye on the plane. She doesn't have to wait at departures. Come right this way, you know. And the, so it's it's kind of relaxed in a really civilized way. Mexico, love the place. Anyway, yes, she she, she waved me off. At the, literally at the door of the aeroplane and um, because I was off to New York and the rest of the boys were off back home and I was on my Todd. Got to New York on my Todd, checked into the hotel on my Todd. There weren't any messages for me and I just sort of sat there, you know, like Forrest Gump on, a, on the bench <laughs> waiting for something to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, here it comes. Sunday, 4th of September. Mexico City to New York City. Supernatural forces woke me at 730 so I phoned Nick to let him know I was up and about. I felt like death. Showering didn't seem to help. I packed like a zombie and staggered down to reception, hair still dripping, face white, eyes red, the very picture of a vampire with a drug problem, to find still more people wanting to have their photograph taken with me. I couldn't dissuade them. Checked out, reeling once again at the price of telephone calls in Mexico. Government taxes effectively double the hotel rate, which is already inflated. While a couple of girls and a boy called Aldo waited with cameras. Aldo gave me a little pot mug with my name on it, which he had made. I wasn't at my most talkative, as I was passed around saying goodbye, while Nick tried to get me out of the door into the waiting minibus. All the doormen wanted their picture taken with me as well. They might as well have passed a corpse around. I boarded the bus with a girl called Bellina, whose job it was to get me to the airport and onto my flight to New York. I was checked in and installed for half an hour in the first class lounge where I had the first coffee of the day and the blood began to drain out of my eyes and into my face. Bellina effortlessly guided me through the various physical and administrative channels to the aircraft. I thanked her and she pointed me down the entry chute. My condition had improved immeasurably by this time. I only felt dreadful. The flight to Newark was uneventful. It seems to me from recent experiences around the world that air stewardesses aren't nearly as pleasant as they were a couple of years ago. I wonder why this should be. I was reprimanded for not having the correct change to pay for a Bloody Mary. I only had a $50 bill. That's only £30. And she reacted as if it was some kind of ploy to get out of paying. Who cares? It seems I'm treated like a necessary evil when I travel these days. I got out of Newark without incident and took a yellow cab driven by a guy who was infinitely friendlier than the airline staff and chatted affably to me on my journey into Manhattan. Today's discovery was Newark Airport, which is closer to Manhattan and less congested than JFK, 
or the horrible La Guardia. The journey into town is also more picturesque. I arrived at the Paramount Hotel around six o'clock, checked in, quote, looks like all your troubles are over, sir, all your expenses are covered, said the chap on reception. Thank you, Peter. And was shown to my room, which was small but interesting. We had a lot in common. I took a bath and relaxed, later going down to the restaurant for dinner and feeling very alone. There were no messages for me, so all I could do was kill time and wait for someone to get in touch. It was like being a spy. After dinner, I went out for a walk around the block. Once again, I was contemplating the strangeness of fame. I had come from Mexico, adulation and complimentary everything, to a big city where I was a total unknown. I was thinking there was something to be said for anonymity when a voice said, Am I mistaken, or are you Steve Hogarth? It was a chap in a small party of German tourists. Two of them wanted my autograph. Ego duly restored, I wandered over to the big sunny TV screen in Times Square, tried to see round the back of it and get a clue as to how it works. All I discovered was cooling fans. On my way back to the hotel, I was pointed at and called a, quote, white lesbian pimp motherfucker by a black preacher guy standing on a box with an all-black crowd around him. Nice to see the word of God being taken to the street. I returned to the Paramount and went to bed. Monday, 5th of September, New York City. Tommy. Woke around nine o'clock. Still no messages. Showered and went down to the restaurant on the second floor. All very casual. You can sit on the balcony overlooking reception. It was around 11 that I asked if they could still do me breakfast. They could, no problem. The Paramount seems to be well hip. Something of an art hotel. It was designed in the 80s by Stark, who also did the Royalton, and is sort of modernist art deco. I tapped away into my laptop during breakfast, writing up the events of yesterday. The waitress kept the coffee coming, and I drank industrial quantities until around one in the afternoon, when I decided to go out looking for a refill for my pen. This turned out to be something of a mammoth project. It's French, and takes a different shape to all the popular American ones. I walked up the road to Macy's and had no luck at all. I did, however, take the opportunity to stock up on Z14 talc and underarm sticks. Really interesting, eh? I decided I'd have to go up market and made my way across town to Fifth Avenue in search of Tiffany's. I couldn't find it, but eventually happened across Saks, the other big department store. Every member of staff I asked gave me conflicting directions to the pen counter, so I wandered aimlessly round and round. Eventually, I was successful. The chap on pens pointed out that if I cut a bit off the end of a Mont Blanc refill, that it would fit. I popped upstairs to have a look at a white Isimayaki shirt that had caught my eye in the window. They didn't have one in my size. By now, my bad knee was hurting from all the walking, so I took a cab back to the Paramount and relaxed in my room. Susan Weaving, the theatrical agent who represents Peter Rieger here, 
called to say she would be arriving at six to take me to Orsa for dinner before the show at the St James Theatre round the corner. I went down to the hotel bar for a quick beer. The waitress said she was from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the only place in the USA where we were famous. She'd never heard of me. Susan arrived on the dot and waited downstairs as I scrambled around like a maniac getting out of the shower and dressed. We walked to the restaurant where we joined Richard, Susan's husband, who is general manager of Tommy for Frankfurt. He took a while to loosen up. He was to accompany me to the show, Susan wasn't coming, and then on afterwards back to Orsa for a chat with Des Makinoff, the director. Dinner was excellent once again, and it was a relief to have some company after two days of solitude. I'm utterly hopeless at being alone. I like to be around friends, really. Richard walked me round to the theatre, and we sat in the third row during the performance. I enjoyed it much more than last time. The music was better played and better mixed, and the performers seemed to be in better form. You could tell Des the director was in the house. As for my impressions of the show, well, let's just say the translation to a musical has stripped a lot of the rock and roll out of it. The music was still there, of course, but the performances from the actors, particularly the lead actor, were of the theatre, not of rock and roll. There was no rock and roll danger about Tommy, nor was there the sense of an alienated lost soul which Roger Daltrey portrayed so well in Ken Russell's mad movie. The Acid Queen had been cast as a black girl who was trying to reproduce Tina Turner's legendary portrayal. For me, this was a mistake. There's only one Tina T, and the role might have been updated brilliantly to a white girl playing it like Susie Sue. That would have given it some edge and got away from it parodying the movie. I was quite certain that I could have intensified the lead role and introduced some real rock and roll mania to the thing. After all... That's what The Who were all about. Afterwards, we returned to the restaurant ahead of Des, who arrived shortly afterwards. I took to him almost immediately. He seems confident and obsessive, but pleasant and not a bit showbiz. More or less what I was expecting of someone who would work with Pete Townsend. Unfortunately, and to my surprise, and contrary to what I'd been told, he hadn't the vaguest notion of me as a singer or a performer. He hasn't listened to or watched the audio and video material that had been sent to him. I got the impression his mind is immersed in other projects at the moment. He's working on a movie and another theatre production. This leaves me still unable to make a definite decision. In fact, I haven't got a decision to make. I said cheerio to Des and Richard walked me back to the Paramount. What a waste of time. Sounds like someone's been telling fibs to Peter Rieger while he spends his hard-earned flying singers round the world on pointless missions. I should have been pissed off, but what the fuck, I'm in New York and Peter Rieger's picking up the tab. I went to the downstairs bar and ordered a beer, but in the end I drank only a little of it and got bored. There's something a little desperate about sitting alone in a bar late at night especially when the bar girls look like porn stars, as they do here at the Paramount. It had been a curious adventure. I had been shipped, all expenses paid, from Mexico City 
to New York to meet someone who I had been told was very excited at the prospect of working with me, only to discover that he had no idea who I am or what I do. Somewhere between Cologne, London and New York, there's been a breakdown of communication and no doubt I'm a pawn in a bigger game. Better off out of it. Not a bad title for an album, that. Went to bed. Tuesday, 6th of September. New York, home. Woke around 10. Susan's assistant called to say she would pick me up for lunch at 12. I showered and then went downstairs to drink coffee and write this diary. John phoned from LA at 12 as I was leaving to ask how the meeting had gone last night. I told him and he said he would see me in Brighton. Susan was already waiting for me when I arrived in the lobby and we walked down the road to a restaurant called Joe Allen's. I ate omelette and, for what it was worth, outlined my feelings about the production, what I felt were its weaknesses and what I thought I might be able to bring to it. It was all beginning to feel like some bizarre charade. Afterwards, she had another meeting in the same restaurant and she introduced me to two chaps called Robin and David, who are something to do with the London Tommy, still in its embryonic stages at the moment. I said bye-bye and walked over to Macy's again in search of a bag to replace my shoebox, which was showing signs of self-destruction. Bought a Samsonite thing and came back to pack. It took longer than I expected, and by the time I got down to the lobby, I was panicking. Jumped into a cab to JFK. There had been an accident on the freeway, and the traffic was jammed as we approached the airport. I arrived at check-in around six, which is cutting it a bit fine, but it turned out not to be a problem. Had a Hagen dust and a Bex, and boarded the 747, which was to take me home. The in-flight movie was backbeat, the story of Stuart Sutcliffe, the fifth Beatle. Oddly enough, Des had been talking about it last night. I enjoyed it, particularly Don Was's soundtrack, which captured the Beatles' early spirit without playing a note of their actual music. By the time the movie was over, there wasn't much point in trying to sleep as we were only an hour out of Heathrow. We landed ahead of schedule at 6.30. The bad news soon followed. Heathrow didn't have a stand for us to pull up to and there was some minor problem with the brakes which the captain had decided to have checked over by engineers before taxiing to the terminal. We sat on the runway for over an hour. We, the passengers, were unable to stand up or summon cabin crew as we were technically still in the process of landing and the aircraft might move at any moment. It was terribly frustrating to be home and yet be unable to go home. I finally emerged from the airport like a bear with a sore head, around eight. The cab driver missed the turn off the M40 and went to Banbury as I snoozed in the back. Eventually got home at 9.15, having just missed Sophie. Said hello and went to bed. Slept till 12 and was woken up by Sophie and Niall to distribute presents. I can't remember feeling more tired. And we're back. Hey. And you can exhale. Well done. <laughs> um, 
And that was that was the last section of diary from 1994. Because by the time we're going to come back next week, we're going to be into 95. God. So the, the last bit of 94, it's the whole thing with New York, with you being taken over to see the show again, and this this really important meeting <laughs> with 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 the director that he just knew nothing about. So weird. <laughs> it so, so weird. And we've, we have talked about that quite a bit, so I don't, I don't intend to go over it too, uh, it, it too much. Though the one thing I would say, because obviously it all worked out, and I think you said that they ended up, the actor who was playing the guy... Uh, he was, was playing, playing Tommy in, in, yeah, playing in New York, yeah, and then he got moved to Germany. He got moved to Germany. Um, and, um, and and it felt like a theatre production rather than a rock and roll show. Um and we've 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 talked about all those things. Was that still a missed opportunity? Do you still, do you think that was a missed opportunity now? Is it just one of those? Because I it it pops up in the diary in a few places, so it must have built as an idea over a period of time to be something that f- felt quite substantial. I've got really mixed feelings about it. I think it's a missed opportunity in the sense that I've never done any theatre. Um, despite being quite a theatrical creature. Um, And that would have been a chance to do some theatre. Having said that, you know, it would have been a chance to do some theatre whilst remaining more or less inside the skin I normally occupy. Mm. Um, It's not like being a proper actor where they might say, okay, can you be... Can you be a dancer now or can you be a, a this or a that? Can you be a a middle-aged father of five, you know? Um, can you be an architect? You know, I just no, no, no clue, can't do that. Gra- graphic you know, designer even. <laughs> well, <laughs> that did involve a certain amount of acting at the time, if I'm honest. But, um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure how comfortable I'd be um, completely shedding my skin, you know, the way Tom Hanks does. You know, he's just another person from one movie to the next. And then a lot of other actors are basically the same person mm. playing a different, a bloke with a different name, you know, from one movie. You, you know, De Niro's always De Niro, isn't he? Being De Niro. And a lot of those people just, they're hired because you know what you're going to get. You're going to Jack Nicholson. You're going to get Jack, you know. Um, so maybe I could have had a successful career in movies being myself uh, or whatever that is. Um, but I really thought I could have nailed Tommy. And so it's an opportunity missed in that sense. Having said that, I, I'm kind of, I've seen enough of that genre and I know how it works to the point where I think I would have tired of it very quickly long before it tired of me um and i'd have probably been signed up to do six months in germany same old shit night after night in front of all these bloody middle-aged germans who didn't really know rock and roll and probably spent the rest of their time listening to bloody umpire music or something is that hard it might be a bit hard but you know what i mean it would have worn thin pretty damn quick so the first few weeks of it, you know, the, up to that point where I felt I'd really got it down and the, the show was, 
a well-oiled machine and running smoothly and we'd, you know, we'd really done a job on it, that would have been exciting and it would have been a brand new experience and, and an experience that I think now I would have been grateful for having had. Um, but I think it would have been hard work, you know, after a while. I, by hard work, I don't mean toil and blood, sweat and tears. I mean, ev- everything involves that if you're going to get it right. But then there's that period beyond which you've got it right where you're starting to lose interest and it's feeling like you're going through the motions. And that must happen very quickly with theatre because it's identical every night and it's supposed to be. And that that I would have I would have suffered and so would everyone around me. <laughs> Everybody would have been crying in the corridor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because you're right, you, you'd, you'd have been in for six to nine months, wouldn't you? <laughs> the audience would have been crying. <laughs> in the um, yeah, it would have been. It would have been a long. It would have been a commitment. And I, you know, John, the manager, and I had a chat with the band and said, "Look, how do you all feel about me doing this? Because it is going to just punch a hole in everything. You're just going to have to go on, on the back burner while H goes off to Germany and is Tommy for six months." You know, and if you're in the band, you'd think, well, he says that, but is that it? You know, will he decide that's what he wants to do? And so I, I think it was a strange, it was a strange time, and in in that sense, it was a blessing that it never happened. Because if they'd got the hooks into you, they would have, they would have, you know, they would have wanted to sign you up for something else. They might have done. Uh, well, I'm working on the assumption that if the if if theatres were full, yeah, and, and it and it was and it was you know and it was it was proving to be um, financially very very lucrative, then they're not going to let you go easily, are they? They're going to find another vehicle for you because they're just going to look at the the revenue. Yeah, but who's to say? Yeah, who's well, to, no, no, but I mean, I guess from the the the, the 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 band's perspective, that you, you could see how that could have happened mm. in that in that scenario. Mm. Um, you know, so and it might no, just provided a circuit breaker for me to think about other things yeah. for myself. You know, redefine what I am rather than the singer in Marillion. Um, so who knows where that might have taken me? Um, but I, I, I would have liked the opportunity to have have uh, experienced that process. Mm. But I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't, certainly don't regret that it never happened. No. Well, and I suppose the timing as well. You know, we've just talked about the album that the band potentially think is, is you know, the, the, the best collection of songs they've put down on record. And, of course, you'd have to question whether that would have that would have even happened. Now, it probably would have done because they the probably would have taken another six to nine months, 12 months to get the show to the point where rehearsals would have started. So you probably would have... But would it have still turned out the same? You don't. You, these are things we just don't know, do we? No, if if, if doing Tommy meant that Afraid of the Sunlight would, would never have existed, that's a bloody good reason not to have done it done. because that, yeah. would, that would be awful. A world without Afraid of the Sunlight in it, from my point of view, I know I'm biased, it's it's not a good thing. I think there's a lot of people who will listen to this that would say exactly the same thing. Yeah, you know, and I'll start with me. 
Um, so absolutely, I can't. I can't even contemplate the world not having that album in it. Um, I think there are. Yeah, there are deathbed moments throughout that one. You know, I call them deathbed moments because I think when I am on the slab, <laughs> gasping my last, there will be quite a few things that rattle through my head. Um, God knows there's enough of them. But, you know, AOS will be one of them. Mm. No, I would I would wholeheartedly agree. Um, the other thing you mentioned in the diary, um, you watched Backbeat on the plane. Yes, I did. And I, I'd already seen it at Warwick University. We, Me and Diz went up to Warwick one night to see it. I thought it was great. I loved it. I, I loved it was the music. I mm. loved them. That was the first time I, I got a new creeping respect for our what's-his-face from uh, the Foo Fighters because he drummed on that. Oh, did um, he? And he really nailed that kind of Ringo energy. Mm. Yeah, Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl. He was involved in that music and it was Don Was who produced it. It was Don Was. Um, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant because it wasn't the Beatles, but it, uh, you know, and it wasn't any of their tunes. But it had the it had the mm. thing, uh, incredible. It had the essence um, that spawned "Please Please Me" and "Love Me Do." You could hear it, mm. and I thought that was amazing. It's a fantastic film and fantastic performances. Actually, um, I can't remember the name of the guy who played Lennon, but I thought he was exceptional. And, uh, and obviously, it, it was Stephen Dorff, wasn't it, who played Stuart um, Sutcliffe? Yeah, and it, and it was it was yes. If you've not seen it, and it's one of those little films that doesn't get talked about very often. It was big at the time, and then and then it's hardly mentioned now, and it's a shame because it's a really great. If you're into you know, if you're into to into music, and you particularly any kind of passing interest in the Beatles, I would wholeheartedly recommend digging that film out. Yeah, so would I. Uh, it's uh, it's it's fairly special. Right, what are you up to for the week then? Well, it's my birthday on Friday. Ah, yes. Um, so I'd like to celebrate that. I wouldn't like to celebrate how old I am, but I'd like to celebrate having a birthday. So I'll try and forget the numbers and just remember that it's a feast day. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. My sisters are coming down, uh, Sue and Jill, with whom you are all no doubt familiar listeners. They're coming down on Saturday and they're always a scream, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, it'll be another fine week to, to have given up drinking, um, like like all the others. <laughs> uh, so that's going to be great. I'm I'm in the studio in the evenings singing with uh, with Mike. That's starting to really come together. I'm starting to feel quite excited about the new record. Still don't really want to talk about it yet, but it's it's coming along. It's getting more and more interesting. Um, we wrote the end of. Oh, I can't even give you a title. Of, don't don't I'll give us a get title. Absolutely murdered by Lucy if I start spilling these because she feels that's Marillion website stuff, not TCD stuff. You no. bastard! No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so, it's not just you. I'd be in real trouble uh, as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, we'd both be hearing the distant scream of tires yeah. um and she does scare me a little <laughs> she scares me a little 
So does Ian. So you get the two of them coming at you at once. It makes you shuffle on your feet a bit, tell you. <laughs> I bet it does. <laughs> yeah, let's not go there. It's going well. It's going well and you're doing interesting things yes. and you're getting quite I on, excited. I, on the other hand, walk in the park. <laughs> right, well, um, have a good day on, yeah. on, on Friday. I've enjoyed this today. It's been nice, hasn't it? Yeah, especially because uh, I, I thought I couldn't remember a damn thing about AOS and I have actually found a few things to talk oh, about. Oh, no, no, no. And relief. we are going to come back to it because I would like to look at some of the lyrics in a bit more detail. So, lyrically, it's such a dense album. Yeah. Um, so I think we'll, we'll do that. But you know what? Let's not worry about that. Let's came from a very dense mind, a lot of it. My favorite, one of my favorite lines ever from the thick of it, which is wonderful. If you've not seen the thick of it, you should. Uh, is he, he's talking about some MP, and he said he's so dense that light bends around him. <laughs> That's a wonderful line. <laughs> I repeat that at any given opportunity. I love that line. Anyway, you have a good week. Have a nice, um, have a nice birthday. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. And uh, and we'll catch up with you, everybody, again next next time. Yes, thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for all the comments. Uh, I read them all, and they're uh, they're really entertaining. Um, and thanks to thanks to the guy who put me right about Roland JC one twenty. Well, I think he was putting me right. I think it was me that said that nobody. Yes, I'd seen that mark. He was called. Mm, yes, the JC forty. Yes, beckons. I sent. I copied that to Rodders and said, oh, uh, he yeah. probably knows already because he's like yeah. that, but. You never know. He might go, oh, oh, he might have a couple of them. Only a couple. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah. (sighs) Right, I'll see you next time. All right. Thank you. Toodle pip, cats. Here comes the crone cast. What the hell am I going to do this week? Thank you, Nick Louder. Thank you, Red Ruddlings. Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production. <laughs>